offerings, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It was Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 15 of what Christ has done and how he had appeared and who would know. And I love the part that Paul talks about him as one untimely born because he's the least of the apostles. The resurrection is a proof of change. Paul is a proof of change, that a life can go from living in one direction to living in another because of the work of Christ. We celebrate the Lord's Supper as a reminder of Christ's last meal with the apostles, a reminder of his body and his blood. And it is ultimately appropriate that at a Passover time, the time of the resurrection, that we are reminded of his work because what we celebrate in both the body and the shed blood is not just a death, but a glorious life, a conquering of sin, a conquering of the grave, and an entrance into the kingdom that God has prepared from the foundations of the world. So as we partake this morning, celebrate that which is accomplished and that which is provided, and know that we live serving a conquering king who has not defeated, or has not been defeated, but has defeated every enemy. Uh, as a reminder, just for some housekeeping, just ask to remember that we'll go front row, back, that way you guys can see who went ahead of you, and just let rows go at a time, so if you're worried about somebody getting into your tougher plate, then you don't have to worry about that, and don't go moving it around too much. If you can help it, just grab a wafer, grab a cup. When you return to your seat, don't partake, but wait, please. We will partake of the wafer and the cup after prayer together. All right? Make sense? So with all of that said, um, we'll let that outside row on this side go first. That way they can get... Marilyn, I'm talking to you. I'm gonna let you, you guys are going to go first so that they can see, and then we'll go row by row to the back. So as we're ready, go ahead and begin.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And of all days, we joyously celebrate this meal together. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of your work and because of your conquering of the grave, we are alive unto you, alive to the kingdom, walking in new life because of the body and blood that you gave, because of the covenant you have installed, and because of the resurrection that you have accomplished. Lord, strengthen us, no matter what may befall us in this world, that we walk faithfully, focusing not on what has been behind, but on the life you have set before, victoriously lived unto your great name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs> And the early church would always partake and then celebrate with a song, and I think we should do the same. Cling to the old rock 
And every time I say that, then we always end up going longer than we're supposed to. So you've been warned already. Um, I forgot I changed that. <laughs> it's always good when you catch yourself off guard with something you've done. Um, reminder, first Sunday. So we are taking up at the end of service Benevolent Fund. If you are able to contribute, thank you, thank you, thank you. We ask if you can contribute to Benevolent. I, I remembered. Elaine is so proud of me. She's had to remind me for like six months. <laughs> we just ask that if you are going to be able to contribute to it, that the uh, envelopes with the big giant B on them, that use those. That way it gets not missed. Again, Benevolent Fund is a uh, running tally that we keep up with. So if there are needs for bills or we need to buy things for mission projects or things throughout the year, we have that money set aside and available for it. So if you can help and contribute to that, thank you. Remind me not to use that next year. That green actually <laughs> glows on my bulletin. That's just, wow. Okay, what have I done? <laughs> um, that, 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 if you can contribute, thank you in advance. We appreciate it. If not, pray for those who would be recipients of it. Um, reminder, church council next Sunday. So church council, you have been warned. Please stick around. Uh, there's a couple things we have to make sure we go over so we can bring them to a business meeting. That's always important. So you have been warned on that. That's all I had. So is there anything else I'm forgetting? Uh-oh, I forgot something. What did I do, Clark? We operate through we operate through a phone app on prayer requests because it makes it a little bit easier to get them out. 
if you do not have that and you would like to get it, let Clark know. And if Clark can't walk you through how to get it on your phone, he'll come grab me and I'll help you walk it through. But at least go to Clark because that way he'll at least know you want to get on there and go from there. Does that make sense? Yeah, the idea behind it, we have as many people as possible because anytime we have a major concern or anything going on, we have as many people as possible praying. So if you'd like to get onto that list and get that app on your phone, it's painless and simple. You can get it set up and it allows Clark to get a prayer request and send it out to everybody at once and then a bunch of text messages and trying to spider it out. So if you are not on there and you want to, get Clark at the end of the service and we'll get you straightened out. Sound good? Yes. And we explained it well. Go us. Thank you. I always forget that. So, Oh, how is Judith doing? In case you've forgotten, um, she had hiatal hernia surgery and gallbladder removed at the same time. So fun was definitely not had by all that day. Mm-hmm. And what, two days before the surgery, she was rear-ended in a car accident. So, <laughs> so keep praying for Judith in recovery. And I know Tim gave us an update that he's healing, getting there. and we're... There we go. That is progress. Considering where we were, we will take every little bit of that. So, all right. Anything else? If not, then I will ask the questions of the day. Man, that green is going to give me a headache. What did Simon Peter say to Jesus after Jesus caused him to catch many fish? Thank you. (laughs) Elaine is like, we can't have you having a migraine in the Sunday morning. This is one of my favorite. I don't know if unintentional comedy is always the best comedy. And I just love that Peter, the professional fisherman, has been like, I've been trying to catch fish all night. Now you want me to throw that net? All right, fine. I'll put down the nets. There's no fish here. Puts down the net. Nets are breaking. (gasps) You are God. (laughs) Just goes to show you, you never know for each person what the thing that, you know, that snaps in their brain, the thing that the Holy Spirit uses to convert them. You never know what it will be, which is why I tell you, always be about the business of discipleship. My great lesson that I learned from this is first sermon I ever preached. They made me, after I was done, stand in the front to do the receiving line thing and Just so you know, as far as I'm concerned, that is a fate worse than death. To have to stand there like a hood ornament and wait to talk to everybody. I'm just not that sociable. Sorry, it just is what it is. And one of the ladies came up to me and said, I appreciate that you were here this morning. I I really needed to hear that. And I said, well, not knowing how to take a compliment to this day, I said, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And she stopped and said, I didn't say I enjoyed it. I said I needed to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And I just stopped, and my first thought was I was standing there going, like, as soon as the receiving line thing was over, I went and found Cameron. I'm like, what did I say? I was going through my notes, like, I didn't say anything. Like, what did I do? And Cameron's like, I have no idea what you did. It's like, neither do I. And then I'm like, I didn't do it. (laughs) But that's a reminder. You don't know what the thing that the Holy Spirit uses. In this instance, for Peter, it was, hey, you can catch fish. (gasps) He knows where all the fish are. Wait a minute. Yeah, but that means you're God, and if you're God and you're in my boat, suddenly it's the Isaiah moment, right? Woe to me, for I am an unclean man, and I live amongst an unclean people. It's like you're suddenly confronted with exactly who you are in the face of God. That's what good knowledge of God is supposed to do. That's how it is supposed to work. And again, I just love that. You don't know what the thing is going to be. Be faithful. Be praying. Be thinking. And when opportunity arises for you to give testimony to Christ, as simple as it may be, give it, because you don't know what things God is using to be the building blocks for someone's faith. Sound good? All right. Don't say this one out loud. Children in the back, do not say this one out loud. Please, 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 please. What took place just before the Sermon on the Mount? Now, think. 
We're looking for one specific thing, again, reason for the question, one specific thing. It's recorded in two different Gospels, so you can do some digging. It will help you out to find the answer. We're looking for the common event before the Sermon on the Mount, and then why in that order? Why is the Sermon on the Mount important, and why is that event before the Sermon on the Mount important? And that's what we'll discuss next week. Sound like fun? All right. In that case, I'm going to stop talking and get out of the way, and we continue on with our service. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His graces? Or are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless or the whitest snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white, pure and white in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansion bright and be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside your garments that are stained with sin And be washed in the blood of the Lamb There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb Are you washed in the blood In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Oh, yeah. One glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away to our home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away. When I die, Bye, bye. I'll fly away. When 
fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to a land where joy shall never end. I'll fly away. of you sitting in the back, you missed the show, so. <laughs> Vern's tired just watching. There you go. On to something useful and productive. First Corinthians 15 is where we have camped out the last few years for Easter Sunday. The uh, two main reasons. One, I'm not clever enough to have to come up with something if I don't know what's coming on next. Two, though, 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's great exposition of the resurrection. And since there's too much in it to cover in one Sunday, we have been going through it on Easter Sunday. If you want to catch up, you'll have to go to the church's YouTube channel and find the last ones to keep up to know exactly where we are. So, in this section, though, we are in the middle of Paul's exhortation on the resurrection. That's why we cover it on this day of Sunday. What we have missed... Because remember, even though we did this last year and the year before last, two rules for Bible reading that you, if you don't know anything else, know these two rules, right? Never, ever, ever read one verse. You read one verse by itself, and you can make it say all sorts of crazy, squirrely things that nobody has ever thought of before. So don't do that. Read your Bible in context. And the second thing is, don't ever let anyone get away with doing this to you without doing any of that contextual work themselves. In other words, if if you ever sit down and for some possible unfathomable reason you would ever listen to someone other than me preach you a sermon. Can't imagine why you would ever do that, but <laughs> if you do, if you ever start their sermon text and you see that it starts with like this, verse 20, what do you automatically know? There are 19 verses before that, right? Know what they are. Not only that, even if you do that, what else do you know? There are 14 chapters before that. Go do some of that work as well. Now, as far as our immediate context, Paul has declared the centrality of the resurrection. That's your opening verses of this chapter. We read this morning the great creed of verses 3 through 8, talking about the proof of Christ's resurrection. And in the previous section before that, which would be about 12 through 19, there is the importance of the resurrection and its necessity for the Christian faith. Now, this matters because Paul is building an argument in the book of 1 Corinthians. Remember, the Corinthian church is... They're in trouble. 
<laughs> Not just a little bit. We actually don't have all of Paul's correspondence to the Corinthian church. We have two of his, we believe, four letters to the church. There is 1 Corinthians, there is 2 Corinthians. There is also a letter in between those known as the severe letter, and there is some discussion that there is a fourth letter that we do not have that is made mention of as well. So Paul was doing a lot of correspondence with the Corinthians because they were just in a, a terrible spot. In the ancient world, to Corinthianize had nothing to do with nice leather seats in your car. Remember that was the big selling point in the 80s? Everything had to have Corinthian leather. Your couches, your car seats. If you, if you don't, oh, you don't remember that was on commercials and stuff. Oh, that that was a, that was somebody's with me. All right, I'm not completely out of my mind. It's a good day. Completely, completely. So, to Corinthianize in the ancient world was basically like, how bad do you want to be today? So, like, do you remember the reputation before they tried to be all family friendly? So, if, like, if if you remember like around 1992 and someone said, hey, we're going to Vegas this weekend, your first thought. Ugh. Like now, I get now there's theme parks and stuff for the kids and stuff, so it's slightly more family friendly. But if you've grown up like I have and you're over the age of 30, when someone says, we're going to Vegas, your first thought is, don't get drunk, don't get in jail, don't go to the casino. Like you're listing all the things you of all the things to avoid. The way you think of Vegas is the way the ancient world would have thought of Corinth. That was, that was their party palace. Do <laughs> what buffets? Yes. <laughs> See, and now you got Treasure Island at the midnight buffet. <laughs> there you go. So Paul is now expounding on the resurrection because he's built. He in chapter fourteen he is built upon the work of the church. One of your uh, I'm sorry, chapter twelve, thirteen, and fourteen is built upon the work of the church. That's why your love chapter that we read at weddings has nothing to do with weddings. It has to do with how we in the church are actually supposed to function together. And by the way, if you had First Corinthians thirteen read at your wedding, that doesn't make you a bad person. I get it completely. Right? I'm not, not, not passing judgment on you there. So he has been laying out systematically how the Christians are supposed to live in light of who they are and what they do. The culmination of that here towards the end of the letter is obviously the work of Christ. The most celebrated work of Christ is what? It's not that. If he dies, goes in the tomb, and that's it, even if you say that is a sufficient sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins where? All the sins that had come up until that point. Now, that would be bad news for us, because how many of your sins have occurred after the crucifixion? <laughs> yeah, quite a few of them, right? As we could venture to say, all of them. This is why the resurrection is so important, is it builds upon the work. Because if Christ dies and goes into the tomb, that's it. Not only is that it as far as forgiveness, does Christ really forgive any sins at that point? No, because what authority does he have in that moment to forgive sins? What has he proven? Hey, the Romans can kill me. Well, you can get in line. There's a lot of people the Romans can kill. By coming out of the tomb, what is he proving? That all those declarations, all the proofs that he is God that John is trying to explain, all the miracles, they are not the power of voodoo. They are not the power of some de de um, deranged witch doctor. They are the power of God, the work that he has declared. Therefore, the work of Christ is the fulfillment of what God has promised and the continuation of all that stuff he was teaching in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled and placed upon Christ. Not only that, but by coming out of the tomb, the death is now, this is going to sound really weird to say it out loud, but it is an eternal sacrifice because it is a living sacrifice. This is why we, this is the difference between Protestant imagery and Catholic imagery, if you want it in a nutshell. Have you ever been to a Protestant church and seen anything on the cross other than like a sash or some flowers? 
No. You've been to a Catholic church. What's on the cross? Jesus. It's the crucifix. That's what separates a cross from a crucifix. Crucifix is a technical term for when it's Jesus on the cross. Why don't we do that? Because he's not there. Because he's not there. He has died, buried, and come out of the tomb, the resurrection. He is a living sacrifice. Therefore, that forgiveness is offered for once for all. It does not have to be re-offered. It does not have to be redone. It is, as John, uh, John 19 says, it is finished. Now, with that all said... Now we can make sense of this because now you actually have enough of a background to understand what Paul is doing, which is now expounding upon the importance of the resurrection, not just in here. Again, I'm big on you knowing stuff, but what am I bigger on? You knowing what to do with the stuff. That's why there's a reason for the trivia question, right? I don't want you to have knowledge. I want you to have wisdom. What's the difference? Knowledge is I know stuff. You know, great big pulsating brain. Hey, I'm smart. The wisdom is I have some knowledge, but I know how it works. I can do things with it. That's the goal. Paul is doing the same thing here in 1 Corinthians. He is expounding upon the resurrection, but doing so in such a way so that you will actually live in light of the resurrection. Make sense? All right, let's dive in, verses 20 through 28. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has a Abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. Who put all things in subjection to him? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And everybody just went, oh, I, I got that. <laughs> yeah, if you're like me, you read that the first time and you get all tied up on all the hymns and the, the, the directional stuff. So that's why we take the time and we go through it a little bit slower to make sense of it all. And I promise you, not only does it make sense, but it's really helpful for how you're going to live like on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, all the days we worry about that when you're not here. So rewind to the beginning. Let's get our foundation laid and then we'll make sense of the hard stuff. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The whole argument in the preceding section is that, the, is that Christ has been raised. There are people that say, well, no, he hasn't. And Paul's like, yes, he has. And there was the proof in the beginning. And it's a necessity. You do not have Christianity if you do not have a resurrection. So we're building on that. Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who are asleep. All right. What do you mean by first fruits? I'm glad you asked because this is not unique to the Corinthians here. Romans chapter 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's where everybody stops when the coffee mug starts, right? That's one of our coffee cup verses I always talk about. You put that on the plaque and it's on your wall and it's Romans 8.28 and nobody ever reads anything else. What was our first Bible reading rule? 
Never ever read one Bible verse. What do you mean he causes all things together for those called according to his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The good that is talked about there, the reason why we look at the churches that say, well, God just works out everything for your good in this world. See, you added to something there, didn't you? Did you catch it? In this world. Does God cause together all things for good? Yes. For his children? Yes. In this world? No. That's the twist. Because what is the rest of this verse talking, or the rest of this section talking about? Your sanctification. Your walking in holiness and the perfection of work that God is accomplishing. Your day-by-day testimony, walking, overcoming of sin, turning away from evil, turning to that which is good. It is empowered not by you and just your sheer gumption. It is powered by the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You walk the walk because God has spurred you there. You are on the path because Christ has placed you there. You are walking to the place that the Father has decreed. You are walking faithfully because the Spirit is empowering you. This is not the first time we will mention Trinitarian theology today. We will come back to that some more. Christ is the first fruits of this. The promise is that as you walk faithfully, no matter what may befall you, let's think about this for a second. Was Christ faithful in his earthly ministry? Yes. What did it get him? It got him dead. That's awesome, right? Like, that's everybody's goal, right? That's what you want. I want to live until they crucify me one good time. Mm -mm. Nobody celebrates that. Was that a good thing for his children, though? Yes. Did Jesus enjoy it? No. There's the difference between good and good in this world. The accomplishment of salvation is an objectively good thing. It may not be pleasant, it may not be fun, but it is good and it is the path God has walked in. On the other side, on the other side of that grave is the righteousness of God. That's where we walk. This world may sideswipe you. They may hit you upside the head with the old golden corral frying pan and and hang on. Choked myself there. And it will not be pleasant. There are numerous churches today that are going to be dealing with that. You want to find something, oh, I should have kept the name. It was in Calgary. You can go look for the video. They were having a Good Friday service, something we did last Friday. Police showed up to to tell them you can't do that. (laughs) And for once, I was so happy, they had a dude for a pastor. And what I mean by that is the health department lady stood there and go, you have too many people, you have to tell them to go home. I have told you from the very beginning, if you would like to stay distance, we spread chairs out, there are places you can sit. If you come to church to worship, you know what I'm never going to tell you? I'm never going to tell you to go home. I don't care if you are walking in with plague. We will sit you in the corner somewhere. I'm not telling you to go home. I'm just not. I'm just not. And that, person, that pastor basically yelled at the health department until they left. And I'd never been more proud of, of one of my fellow compatriots in all my life. It was, no, it was in uh, Calgary, in Canada. Which, Canadian nice for once didn't kick in. I was so pleased. 
No, no, different, different church. They're having all sorts of fun. Now, again, did that man enjoy that? No. What is he doing? He's standing up for his church's right to worship. He's standing up for the people's right to worship. Again, be safe. Take precautions. Be smart about things. But at the end of the day, do what? Do what is right in the sight of God first and foremost. Will that be pleasant? No. Will that be an earthly good? No. But the promise is not for blessings and comfort in the here and now. It is in the kingdom that God has promised. And the goal of sanctification is walking in holiness to that place. That's what Christ has done. That is the first fruits that he has demonstrated. His coming out of the grave is proof that God has the power to accomplish that. And that is what we long for. That is what we look to. Now, because Jesus is first fruits, he is not just an example to follow. It is also a standing that he has. What do I mean by that? Again, Colossians chapter 1. Christ is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell on him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The reason we call ourselves Christians is because we are the Christ ones. We are following after Christ. Why? Because that's the direction we want to go. That is the Savior that has given us the grace. That is the sacrifice that has covered our sin. That is the example we wish to follow. There is no other example in this world capable of leading to righteousness other than Christ. Even when you get to your New Testament, what does Paul tell you? Follow after me as I follow after Christ. Which means you walk after Paul as long as he's going after Jesus. The minute Paul goes that way, what do you do? You keep going after Jesus. He told the Galatians that. If I or an angel from heaven preaches you another gospel, he is to be accursed. He is anathema. And so if I come in and start preaching, this is, again, in your bulletin. That's why all these references that I'm reading, they're in your bulletin. So that if you ever read one and go, that's not what he said, then that's when you should start throwing things at me. Because I'm potentially leading you in the wrong direction. That's why I had to take all the hymnals out from underneath the chairs. I don't encourage you guys to throw things at me. <laughs> there you go. Now you understand what I say. When in doubt, get a bigger Bible. You want a good hardback Bible so that if you ever need to, you can be... Ah! Lou's family probably good at that. You know, they, they, they're already practiced with the shoe, right? Be like... <laughs> It's part of it. So yeah, if I start leading you astray, you should throw things at me. Run me out of here on a rail. That's why when you ask questions, I never be like, I can't believe you people are asking me another question. I want you to ask questions because that means I have said something unclear. And you know what I want to do if I've said something unclear? I want to fix it. I want to clear it up and make sure we are on the right track because we all want to go in the same direction, which is the direction that Christ is going. So Christ has been raised from the dead, first fruits of those who are asleep. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. All right, guys, I'm settling the argument once and for all. It was Adam's fault. <laughs> okay? Just so you know, when you go, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave to me. That didn't fly with Adam, didn't fly with God, it's not going to fly now, it was Adam's fault. And you can see this if you actually paid attention. Genesis 3, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, see, what was the problem? <laughs> Now, that has nothing to do with not listening to your wife. It has everything to do with listening to your wife when she asks you to do something as opposed to what God has done. Again, if I or an angel from heaven preached you another gospel, get out! You know, break out your this is Sparta and kick him into the hole and be done. Even if it is your beloved wife, 
literally flesh from your flesh. When she says, we should do this, which is the exact opposite of what God has said, it should be, get out of here, woman. No. So the sin was, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And this isn't new for Paul either. He told the Romans the same thing, Romans 5. Just as through one man sin entered the world, see, Adam's fault, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But we have a dichotomy. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. This is why, we mentioned Trinity earlier, we're going to get really fun now. This is why Christ's unique status is so important. So, big fancy, we've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. Big fancy theological term of the day, the hypostatic union. Yeah, Blue's like, yes! Confusing theology words for the win. We like it. All right. Hypostatic union. What do we mean? That in the man, Christ Jesus, there is, there are, there is, oh my goodness, there are two natures. Okay? One is fully God. One is fully man. As the great creeds say, with no mixing or mingling. They are smushed together in the man, Christ Jesus. So he is fully God and fully man. There is no cheating. So Jesus is not Superman. He is fully God and fully man. That is hypostatic union. How does that work? I have no idea. Neither do you. Anyone who tells you they do know how that works, run screaming from the room. Do you turn into a four-year-old and go, nah, 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 I can't hear you. Because they don't know how it works. Because if we could explain God, that would explain how we could explain God. Because he would be a creation of our own imagination. We explain what we can about God. Because we are limited, finite beings trying to explain an infinite God. So we explain how he has revealed himself. And we go, well, how does that work? Oh, no. I'm sorry. I wish I did. And trust me, as someone who relies on their brain for a lot of things, that does not give me any comfort. I hate things I can't explain. I despise them. They drive me insane. I, I work on puzzles that I can't solve. You know why? Because I can't solve them. And it bothers me that I can't solve them. You got to learn with theology. God is beyond us. He is the incomprehensible one. We cannot understand him. So we explain the best we can based on the information that we have. And we go from there. So I say all of that because Jesus as fully man represents us before the father. He is our eternal sacrifice as God, but he is our representative as us. This is why when people ask him, the demons keep be forgiven. You know what the answer to that is? It's really easy. No, they don't have a sacrifice. They don't have anyone that represents them before the Father. We do. The man, Christ Jesus. By a man came death. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. This was also promised back in the garden. Genesis 3 again. I will put enmity, this is talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You ever wonder about that language? There is no seed of the woman, unless you have something very bizarre going on. You take, what's, what's the joke? It takes two. In order to have children, it takes two. There is no seed of the woman, which is a prefiguring of what Christ will do in the virgin birth. That's our, what God will do in the virgin birth. That's why these things matter. Christ is unique, and he needs that status because he must both represent God and represent us. He must be eternal, and he must be us walking this world, and these come together. That's why John explains it in John 1. The word, the eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of 
of grace and truth. Now, we gotta make sure we make we gotta make sure we correct things as we go. So verse 22, make sure we understand this right. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Did Paul just say everybody's gonna be saved? Are you sure? Kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is why I always tell you Christianity is a thinking religion. Who belongs to Adam? How many people belong to Adam? All of them. Romans 3 helps you out with this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As sin entered through one man, then all men sinned because we sin. Sin comes in, it gets passed down to all of us. Congratulations. Good team. Who belongs to Christ? All of us everywhere at any time? <laughs> all, the simple way to put it to where we don't offend anybody, all that have repented and put their trust in Christ. All those that are walking faithfully after him. First John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, welcome to your modern world. Welcome to your modern world. I love you, you love me, there's no sin in anybody. I've done better. No, I mean, I'm not... I'm trying to remember where I made mention of this this week. But talk about things sticking in your head. This popped back into my brain this week because it came up in conversation. Um, to this day, I can still sing just about the entire words on, on time to Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All. Yeah, talk about of all the weird things in life that you can do, there's, there's my bizarre talent. I told you guys on Friday, I have no marketable skills. I am just full of useless information. Why can I, to this day, at 39 years old, sing The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston without any problems? Because when I was five and I graduated kindergarten, they made us memorize it so we could sing it at graduation. <laughs> and some of you that have children my age are going, that makes sense, I get that. Because that's the secular anthem. It's all about who wears the power in. It's in me. Where is my greatness? It's in me. Where is beauty? It's found in me. No, it isn't. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Welcome to the great deception. I can't remember who gets credit for it, but what's Satan's greatest trick? Convincing the world that he doesn't exist. That's why you're seeing what you're seeing in your culture, why you can't criticize anything, why you have to agree with everything or else you're evil or you're a bigot or you're hateful or anything. Because what you're doing is taking a stand in anything and you're saying that is wrong. And that may be the closest thing you'll come to a modern sin in this world is saying that that's wrong. How dare you say that's wrong? Who do you think you are? I'm nobody. I'm just telling you what God says. It's not my rules. I don't make them. I just follow them. So if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the line we have to remember as Christians always. Please, 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 please. I told you a thousand times, I'll say it again. The reason I always tell you to pray for my wife is why? Because she's married to an idiot. I tell you, pray for my wife, she's married to an idiot. Who is that idiot? And I'm okay with this. I mean, I'm not, not all the time, but sometimes I'm okay with it. Sometimes, some days I'm doing better than others, okay? <laughs> the accusation that gets lobbed against Christians, unfortunately, too many times, rightly, is that you people are just so self-righteous. And you know what that's telling me when we hear that? We've messed up. 
how, when I am telling you my righteousness is given to me by Christ, it is not mine. I am wicked and sinful and rotten to the core, and I only am good because God has made me good. How can that make me self-righteous? And the answer is it shouldn't. If it makes me self-righteous, then I'm doing something wrong. The world's message back to us shouldn't be, you people think you're better than us. No, 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 we don't. We actually think we're worse than you. But we have found grace. We have found forgiveness. We have found a fount of righteousness, a, a wellspring sp uh, spilling up. I use the example because I heard it once and it explains it perfectly. We are beggars who have been given bread. No starving person is given bread and be like, look at the bread I made. Look at, look at my awesome bread. They're what? <laughs> I got bread. It, it, I, one of these days I'm going to find the video again, but they, um, some group did this where they, they were giving out pizza to, to homeless folks. And what they discovered was if they gave one homeless man an entire pizza, you know what he did? He shared it. Because he didn't have anything, but he knows everyone else who doesn't have everything. And he takes that and he's like, guys, come here. <laughs> we all now have something. Welcome to discipleship. Welcome to evangelism. This is how it works. Is we are beggars who have been given bread. And we look and see hungry people and go, I could eat all the bread. Or I could, <gasps> bread, 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 bread. If they call us self-righteous, we've done something wrong. We're not. We're wicked and sinful and evil, and God has cleansed us. We have a hope and a future because Christ has climbed out of the tomb. We have forgiveness because his body and his blood have been shed and given for us. It is not us that is good. It is him that is great, and that is the reason that we stand. Revelation 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Do you remember what we covered last week for Palm Sunday? What did they wash their robes in? Why are their robes shining white? Because they found the best bleach on the planet? No, because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They haven't made their robes, their robes white. Robes white. You say it three times fast. They have not made their robes white. Christ has. They are not standing because of their righteousness. They are standing because of his righteousness. So, 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So, in other words, be patient. God has a time frame. God has a schedule. And it's never, ever, ever going to be as quickly as your sinful heart and mind want. Not even once, not even a little bit. So, then comes the end, verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. I will add two words, as promised. As promised. This is your connection point right here. Daniel 2. In, those, in the days of those kings, this is the vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has seen of all the kingdoms that have been assembled on the statue, and all of a sudden there's this little rock, right? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to this king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And how does that work? Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. 
having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is your connection. This is what it looks like. The end comes and he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and power. And by the way, that's part of your good news. We read Romans 8 earlier, the coffee cup verse. There's another verse from Romans 8 that everybody knows. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Did you ever pay attention to what comes right before that? Death and destruction. Martyrs for the faith. They're being killed with the sword, slaughtered day by day. And in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Cool. I'm still talking. Is anything still on back there? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Whatever. You guys will just have to catch up. It'll see that one. That one's trying to talk to me in there. So anyway. In death, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors because what is the kingdom of God? It is not in the here and now. It'll just take a second. Let me back up. It is not in the here and now. It is in the eternal kingdom. They have been given victory because they have won the fight. They were faithful until the end. They have conquered. They have succeeded. Um, you'll just have to reopen. Um, okay, you got it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it likes to be aggravating. The computer decides, I want to reboot now. Aren't they, though? Don't you love it? So this kingdom that Jesus is giving, he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and power. That's the longing. And in the meantime, we walk faithfully, knowing that as God is strengthening us and as we are walking faithfully, we are marching towards that kingdom. Whether it's pleasant in the here and now, whether it's good for us in the here and now, it is always good for us in eternity. Oh, look at that. Just in time. Verse 25. <laughs> for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet feet. And if you're wondering when that actually is, welcome to the world you're living in. That's in the here and now. You're going, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does. And I can explain it. When has God not been king of creation? Is there ever a time when God has not been king of creation? The answer is no. Is there ever been a time when Christ is not Lord? No. So is Christ Lord right now? Does it look like it? <laughs> <laughs> Not always. How are the enemies of Christ defeated? Just out of sheer curiosity. Are they defeated when we pass the right laws? Are they defeated when we elect the right politicians? Are they defeated when we have the right corporate tax policies? Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where the defeat is. If we're losing, quote-unquote, ground in this culture, it's because we're trying to hold and take the wrong ground. We're trying to fight the wrong battles. And that's part of the problem. When Christians are too identified in a political process, we've done something wrong. Did I say don't vote? 
No. Did I say don't advocate for policies? No. But when that becomes your defining characteristic, we have lost something. We don't wield the sword of political power. We don't wield the sword of cultural influence. We wield the sword of the word. You need good Yosemite Sam theology. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. One of my favorite Bugs Bunny cartoons. My kids have been. My kids have rediscovered Bugs Bunny. Is there's an actual. There's an election where Bugs and Sam are running against each other, and Bugs quotes FDR. I'm going to uh, was it uh, walk softly and carry uh, or speak softly and carry. Uh, yeah. And Sam's response is, Well, I'm going to speak loudly, and I'm going to carry a bigger stick. And he hits Bugs Bunny upside the head, and I'm using it too. <laughs> That should be us in the world. When we go to the world for our authority, yeah, we're wielding a pretty big stick. Government's pretty powerful, but is it the big stick? No. When we go to culture for our appropriation, when we go to culture for our authority and our approval, are we speaking with the right voice? No. We abandon this and go out into the world and try to have their arguments with their weapons. We just, we stopped yelling and we stopped hitting people with the big stick. When in doubt, get a bigger Bible. <laughs> and wield it. Wield it. Proclaim. No. That's why I celebrated. Look, he might be wrong. We might all be wrong about all of this. But that pastor in Calgary, that's why I celebrated. Because you know what he said? You don't belong here. Get out. No. When you come back with the rightful authority, he literally told him, come back with a warrant and then we'll all go home. But until then, you don't get to just come in here and say, we can't have church. Go home. And when she tried to argue with him, he just started yelling no over and over again. <laughs> it was great. That was, that was his answer. No, you don't have the authority here. And that was why I was so aggravated when I saw that video of the church in California, where the pastor said, going, please let us reopen church. Go open your church. Go worship. If you're not safe, what did I tell you guys in March and April? If, you're, if you don't feel like it's safe, please stay home. If you have health issues, stay home. When I thought it was safe for us to get back together, I said, please, come back. We spread out the sanctuary as we've had no problems and as people are getting over, uh, people have been infected other places and they've stayed away and they've gotten better and we're getting stronger and we've get people vaccinated here. What have we done? We've added chairs. We've moved the seats back to more towards normal. We've started to resume a normal schedule. We've tried to be smart and safe about things. But what have we never done? We've never sacrificed gathering together as God's people for the worship of his name. We've never sacrificed the proclamation of his word because we can't sacrifice those things. Those are commands from the Most High and no government authority has any right to say differently. There's a different sphere. And when they tell you differently, it's because they're arguing against this. You can't put the sword away and then be surprised that you lost the fight. And that's what's been broken for too long in our country. When it looks like Christ is not reigning like he's supposed to be, it's because we're not actually fighting the right fight. We're going, pass this law, bring in that legislation, do this with taxes. No, no, repent and believe the gospel. There's a difference. Fight the right battle. Hebrews tells you, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why I tell you, proclaim, because you never know when God's going to use that proclamation. You caught all the fish. I'm so sorry. I'm a sinful man. I mean, everybody standing outside going, the fish did it for you? Okay, whatever, dude. Doesn't matter. 
because what is that built on, though? That was built on a life going to synagogue, a life of knowing the scriptures, a life of expecting the work of God. And so when it showed up, guess what he didn't do? He didn't miss it. We hide. We wonder, well, what are people going to think? Or I don't know all the answers. I don't care if you know all the answers. Proclaim Christ and his great mercy. Proclaim his work that he has accomplished for you. Proclaim his offer of salvation to the nations. And never be afraid of what the Holy Spirit will do in that work. Because you don't know when it will be the work. You don't know when it will be the accomplishment. But we know that who is reigning right now? Christ. And if he's reigning, enemies are being defeated, they are running, and if we're not a part of that, it's because we're standing in the wrong place. So verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. This is part of that now, not yet, and that trusting and walking, right? Hebrews chapter 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Two things top the list every year when they talk about phobias. You know what they are? It's my favorite dichotomy in all the world, that these two things are the two most feared things in all the world. Death, Death and public speaking. <laughs> I just always love that people are like, I am terrified to die. Would you like to give a speech? Okay, you can kill me. <laughs> there are a lot of people that exist like that. People are like, mm -hmm. Why are we all afraid of death? Do you ever think about, of all the things to be afraid of, has that ever made any sense? And I mean from a completely secular point of view. Does the fear of death make any sense? What can you do about it? What are you going to know about it? From a secular point of view, and what is it going to be? It's nothing. If you think that there is nothing else, why are you afraid of dying? It's literally, you won't even know. You won't even know. And yet we're terrified. See, the, the, See, oh, see, Denny's, quit reading my mind. Stop that. Stop that. You're exactly right. The truth of God is revealed from, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of godliness of men, because that which they know about God, they suppress in unrighteousness. Paraphrase of Romans 1, starting around verse 18. Well, it's not that they're afraid they're on the wrong side, but they're afraid that there is something, because you know why they're afraid there is something? Because they know that there is something. The truth is there. It is revealed. They know. And they lie and reject the truth and unrighteousness. The human heart knows, the mind knows, it just tries to change the subject every chance it gets. Now, that's one of the reasons why that enemy is the last to go. Because even Christians experience death. We all died. Nobody survives life. Death rate is still 100% last time I checked. Nobody's walking around and being like, hey, I made it, guys. Hadn't got me yet. Yeah, it's coming. Just not, not yet. This is the now, not yet of your salvation. I've, we talked about this on Wednesdays more than we do on Sunday mornings. Maybe we should talk about it in here. Remember, we have gradations to this. We have placeholders here. So you have been saved by the work of Christ. But you are actively in your life as you walk in faithfulness being saved. And you are longing for the day when sin will be done away with completely and you will be saved. So you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That's how this works. That's a now and a not yet. Are you righteous before God? because of the work of Christ? And the answer is yes. Are you righteous right now? And the answer is no. I know my own brain, so I know that's not true. That's a now, not yet. You have been declared righteous before God, and when you get there, you will be. 
just not yet. And that's again why this last enemy gets to sit there because there needs to be something to spur you. There needs to be something to shake the world. There needs to be something to conquer as we walk. It is accomplished, but it is not yet fully realized. And that is why the Christian walks faithfully. 2 Corinthians 5. Be always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent for the Lord. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, make sure you heard me in order, because I said this before, I will say it again because it bears repeating. Don't let the world, tra uh, don't let the world twist your definition of faith. You are not a Christian of faith because you believe that there is a God. Everybody believes there is a God. They just reject the truth and unrighteousness. I've already said that again before. I'm just going to say it again. Your faith is not that God is there. Your faith is that God will deliver what he has promised. Have you seen the kingdom? No. Have you seen yourself live righteously? No. <laughs> have you seen yourself do a little bit better? Yes. But have you seen yourself sinlessly righteous? No. What are you hoping for? Can, can you imagine? You know what? I'll ask it this way. Can you imagine your siblings being sinlessly righteous? <laughs> See, I can't ask if you can imagine you being sinlessly righteous, because some of you are probably like, yeah, I, I can picture that. Can you imagine your siblings being perfect in the sight of God? The answer is no. You live with these people, and you know how mean they are, and how rotten and evil they are. Um, <laughs> Terry, I'll help you out. Terry shook his head, though. <laughs> there you go. I point that out because if they are in Christ, they will be perfected before the throne. And you're like, no, they won't. No, I promise you, yes, they will. That's faith. That's what you're trusting in. Not that God will be there. You know he'll be there. But that he will accomplish what seems like the impossible. That he will take rotten, vile sinners and perfect them in his sight so that they will be righteous. That is the final conquering. Verse 27. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's a quote. It comes from Psalm 8. And again, it's a pointing to Christ. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you take care of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's what Paul is quoting from in Psalm 8. It's, it's a messianic promise. A reminder that the Son of Man is coming. One who will represent man. That the redemption will be accomplished. John points to this at the end of chapter 3 of his gospel. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. As Psalm 2 puts it, do homage to the Son with whom you will have to deal. Don't war against God, but trust in his provision and walk faithfully. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This is where Paul decides he wants to get complicated, right at the end of our section. So, Christ will subject all things to himself. 
What is the one exception to that all things? This is where it gets technical. The exception is God. <laughs> God will be subject to who? No one. So this is where we're going to use a little bit of technical language because is, is Jesus God? Yes. Now, this is where we're going to get really fun. Is Jesus the totality of God? <laughs> <laughs> because the answer would be like, no, but, but yes, this is your Trinitarian theology. Three, three persons, one God. So technically now when I'm speaking of God, I'm talking about Yahweh, the essence of God, the, the core, the substance of God. And within the substance of Yahweh, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So what you have going on is the Son will put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the fulfillment of Scripture. That's the promise. But when he says, when the Son says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that Yahweh is exempted who put all things in subjection to the Son. So this is why I say this is where it gets technical. We're going to go to verse um, 28 to make sense of this. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself. So when all things are subjected to the Son, the Son himself also will be subjected to Yahweh, who subjected all all things to the Son, so that God may be all in all. I read it like that so it'll make sense to you. Christ, as our representative, as a man, will be subject to Yahweh. Christ, as Yahweh, will rule over everything. Now again, does that sound slightly schizophrenic? I can admit from a human point of view that that sounds a little schizophrenic. Can I explain God to you any better than that? I really wish I could. <laughs> I really wish I could. The nutshell is, God will reign for all eternity. God will be all in all. The Son, as a man, leading his people as the first fruits, everything of this world subjected to him, will stand before the Father and say, I have done this according to the decree. So as a representative of us, he will present everything unto the Father. And the Father, as a representative of Yahweh, Yahweh will rule over everything. That's the conclusion of things. That's what Paul has been building on. 1 Corinthians 3. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. That's the setup. Everything worships and serves what? Or who? serves Yahweh. It serves God. And that's why John 6, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Welcome to where we stand because of the resurrection. Getting choked up again. Redeemed in Christ, glorifying him because he is our representative and he is God in flesh. Sanctified and saved by God, who is our all in all. The author of the kingdom, the one who perfects us on that work, the one who carries us, the one who has sealed us, the one who upholds us. There is no better thing. There is no better way. There is no higher truth. It is what Christ's work is pointing to. It is what the Spirit's work in you is pointing to. It is what our lives are supposed to be pointing to. If we're pointing to something else, you've forgotten what Easter is supposed to be. 
Look, we dyed eggs with the kids yesterday. They thought it was fun. They thought it was the coolest thing. I remember dying Easter eggs with my mother. That's not Easter. That's not the resurrection. That's not Christian living. It's not. It's fun. Enjoy it. Enjoy your life. Do fun things with your kids. Give them memories. But recognize that the most important thing you can give them is a testimony. The most important thing you can do is disciple. The most important thing you can do is build so that they will evaluate this world based on the principles of Christ. So they will evaluate this world based on the teachings that God has given. So that we will evaluate and think and walk faithfully. So that when we see the problems, you know what weapon we pull out? You need to vote. No, no. you need to repent. Regardless of which side of the aisle, regardless of who they are, you need to have the sword wielded against you. And if you will not bow before it, then there is a judgment coming. And I will mourn you in that day. But right now I'm warning you that it is coming. That's the lesson of Christ. He will reign because he does reign. And we walk faithfully. And as we walk, he strengthens. And as we are strengthened, we don't always enjoy this world. But we rejoice in the God who preserves us within it. Let's pray.